Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, Auntie Beeb takes control of Dave and his sisters. Reality TV stars ask for more support from producers and we preview the first slate of shows you'll probably be able to watch with Apple TV+. Also, we hear from the BBC's Bob Shannon on this year's big new breakfast radio shows and analyse The Guardian's plan to date stamp their old articles. Plus, in the media quiz, we find out how much telly our guests really watch. It's all to come in today's media podcast. And joining us today, media podcast regular, director of creative media partners, Paul Robinson. Hello. Hello. Always fresh back from somewhere exotic and exciting this time. Well, not that exotic. I've been in the US quite a lot because we're doing a a big deal with Comcast for this new Hispanic channel we're launching. So uh, I've been shuttling between New York and Philadelphia on the Amtrak, which is a very good train, by the way. Uh, Wow, I wasn't expecting train info so soon into the show. Do you get one of those cars where you can look out American style of the window? No, it's not that. It just is in economy. The seats are all huge. I mean, maybe because that reflects the people possibly, but uh, it's very, very comfortable in economy. That's the point. With lots of legroom, which I always appreciate. There we are. Paul, very quick into the show, has uh, offended his future clients at Comcast. And also joining us uh, is a regular on the show, the creative director of Folder Media, Matt Deegan. Hello, Matt. Oh, well, hello. Uh, thumbs in many media pies. Uh, always. Got to keep them warm. And the pie that has come to my attention recently ah. is, pod- because I'm participating in this pie on one of the fillings, mm. uh, is Podcast Live. Yes. Which it's... is this new sort of, I guess, quite entrepreneurial venture where you're putting on lots of podcasts live in a kind of festival setup. That's right. So a one-day conference. Um, on it, it is slash was on Sunday, depending on when you're listening to this. <laughs> uh, it brings together slash brought together 14 podcasts, all in kind of news and and politics, uh, an amazing lineup: uh, Brexit Cast, uh, ITV News, Sky News, Telegraph, Times. The week on wrap with Ollie Man. Uh, that one too, um, and uh, and and all of those podcasts are recording a show live in front of an audience, and people can go and buy tickets at podcastlive.com. Uh, and what we've, what it's, it's a great bunch of people, but also the guests they're bringing in uh, are amazing too, uh, from uh, Justin Greening, uh, Lord Adonis. Um, uh, Alistair Campbell's confirmed today, so it's a, it's a, a really great lineup, and it's three simultaneous tracks of podcasts, um, and it's the first one we're doing, and we're going to hope to do more events like this around the country, but also more verticals. So this one's politics, but there could be sports-specific ones or um, wellness. Uh, so if you are interested, if you're doing a podcast and you're interested in, in doing a live one with us, do get in touch. And Paul, the the benefit for an audience of going to see a podcast being recorded live is not always immediately obvious, is it? I mean, what are you watching? If you're watching this, you're watching three people with mics in front of their face. What's exciting about that? It's a bit like the old Radio 1 roadshow, you know. I mean, doing doing the roadshow on a beach is quite good. Doing it in a shop window I always thought was very dull, (laughs) you know, because it's basically a bunch of people talking into microphones. But, you know, great guests that Matt's announced, so I think it's going to be lively and entertaining. And even when we've recorded this podcast, you know, in various places around London, people do sort of look at you and, you know, sort of gl- glance up between their gin and tonics. So I guess, no, I think it'd be good. There's actually, I think, Matt, such an appetite from a really podcast-loyal audience, mm. the kind of people that would pay to come and see their favourite podcasters, that the bar is very low. You literally just have to be in the same room as them. You don't have to put on the show. You know, I think a lot of people are anxious, like they need to put on a big show. Mm. You really just have to be there and talk because that's why people like you. Absolutely. I think p- people are coming because they're fans of those shows, 
uh, and you know, they're in their ears every week and they get to know those characters um, and they want to be close to them and, and uh, maybe see them afterwards and get a photo and uh, or just have a chat. Uh, and it's been interesting seeing which podcasts have been good at selling tickets and which ones have been uh, less good at that. And what, what's the economic model there? Do the podcasters get different fees based on how many seats they sell or not? So it's a revenue share uh, based on how many tickets they sell. Uh, we You can buy a ticket just for an individual show or you can buy one for the day. And we have ways to incentivize people, uh, podcasters, to help us sell the day tickets too. Uh, but that's the other thing. There's been a, a lot of people who've bought day tickets uh, who... Uh, yeah, if you love politics, you probably listen to, to two or three podcasts connected to it. Um, and I think the other thing that a lot of our podcasts have said is it's a way for them to market themselves to other people who like that sort of thing. Uh, and um, we're fascinated to see how it goes and, you know, hope there's going to be more of them. OK, we shall report back. Uh, let's get on with the news then. And Paul, the commercial arm of the BBC has just taken control of 10 stations that were in the UK TV stable. So this is Dave, uh, Eden, and a few others from Discovery Gold. It's the biggest deal in the corporation's history. What are the details? Well, that's how Tony Hall's describing it anyway. I'm not sure that's quite right. But it's essentially uh, the BBC will now take over the other half of UK TV they didn't otherwise own that was formerly owned by Discovery. Now, the issue for the BBC, of course, is they can't raise capital. They can't borrow money. So they can't really pay the full market value, which is about 400 to 500 million. So they have paid 173 million, which is a big amount of money for the BBC. Uh, they've taken on some debt as well, about 70 million of debt. Um, but critically, what they've done is they've said that Discovery can have access to a lot of their content, particularly their uh, the content that comes out of Bristol, uh, the natural history content, for Discovery's new streaming service. So by adding all those bits together, they have now got full control over UK TV. Except uh, they also put out their annual plan this week. And looking at the BBC's views on that, they're sort of essentially saying the BBC needs to compete with Netflix and Apple, they need to be looking to the future, younger audiences. Is selling your programs to Discovery and buying some cable and satellite TV channels really looking to the future? That seems like old revenue models. I think they're revenue models which which have still got a decent life in them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the UK TV channels throw off an enormous amount of cash, so... Uh, you know, earnings additive, income coming back into the Beeb. And also some of those channels now are creating their own content. Uh, and uh, I know there were lots of issues around you know, UK TV's streaming service uh, and BBC content on that. Uh, so it gives them a bit more control of their archive. But I think selling, selling content to third-party streaming services is a challenge for all broadcasters because all around the world, all the different conglomerates, you know, they're they're all in the streaming business um, and they've all got partners overseas as well and it's it's trying to make that, that best combination. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I think the important thing is they're selling this content outside the UK, so that helps a bit. But Matt is right. Um, the BBC's got a lot of things to think about because it's been, you know, confusing of some people about The Last Kingdom. You know, that show then became a Netflix show. Um, you take things like The Bodyguard, which was both on iPlayer and on Netflix. You know, they've been partnering with Netflix, but of course, Netflix are, you know, both partner and enemy. Um, and they've got to think about their strategy. There's BritBox coming along where they're going to be partnering with ITV. They still want to drive iPlayer. Uh, so the BBC has got a complicated uh, content distribution future to figure out. And I think they are not quite there at the moment. And what about for indies who are pitching TV ideas? to the BBC that maybe then don't get greenlit on the BBC so they take them to UK TV and apologies to those of you who work for Dave and so on but it is probably usually that way around isn't it they probably prefer it was on BBC too they end up at Dave or Gold and the commissioner there effectively then also works for the BBC it doesn't feel like there's a plurality of options there well uh like all big organisations, uh, the BBC is unlikely to be as joined up to have <laughs> a, uh, a central uh, commissioning strategy across all of its channels. Uh, and also, I think what Dave's been very successful at commissioning is is really thinking about its own channel and brand uh, and voice. Yeah, but you can see the issue there, can't you? Because what is the Dave voice? It's a it's a sort of it's it's men chatting mm. in a way that other men who might buy beer might be interested in, which is fine. But if that's being owned by a public service broadcaster, is that a little bit uncomfortable? 
Oh, I think the big issue here is, you know, look, Planet Earth outside the UK is going to be on Discovery, not on the BBC. And I think people will ascribe value to Discovery for what is a BBC production. That's the real risk for the BBC. It's not about the commissioning in the UK on their channels. That's a small deal. The big issue is about the BBC's overall strategy in a world where effectively its crown jewels are not going to be on a BBC platform outside the UK. That's a big risk. I'd be uh, interested to know what... Um BBC Studios slash The Old Worldwide uh, thinks about this deal, particularly if you're in charge of the BBC Earth channel uh, that is distributed mm. in lots of different markets as well. Uh, what happens to your content there? But domestically, it is a big deal that suddenly the BBC goes from shutting down BBC Three, for example, to now having, what, six new digital channels that it owns. The digital channels are... Without Ofcom as, having to green light it. Yeah, as, as Matt says, look, you know, at the moment, most viewing is still too linear, but that is rapidly changing. And the future is non-linear. And so the BBC must be thinking about that. It's got to think about that in terms of delivery to licence fee payers, but critically thinking about how it funds itself. So while this is interesting, it's not really part of the ongoing strategy, which must be to think about where the BBC is going to be in five or ten years' time. And at the rate at which behaviours are changing by consumers, that might even be too far in the future. Okay, there are, as ever, many stories about the BBC, so I'm going to move on to another one, uh, which is that they removed last week all of their podcasts from Google. Mm. Well, it's from Google Assistant, wasn't it? And, you know, the smart stuff. And so the idea is that if you ask Google, uh, I won't say the words in case people are listening to a smart speaker right now because that's irritating, but if you ask it to bring you a BBC podcast, uh, Woman's Hour, for example, mm. or Front Row or something, it would have opened it up in its own podcast app. And the BBC said, no, that's restricting choice. So it's two things. It's it's yes for smart speakers, but also for, for mobile. So uh, obviously we all know Apple Podcasts, um, an app that's pre-installed on all iOS phones. Uh, and because of that relationship, 80, about 80%, 60 to 80% of all podcasts are downloaded through through Apple uh, Google uh, earlier or late last year launched Google Podcasts, uh, a similar thing. They've baked Google Podcasts into the Android operating system. And then they're in search or downloading an app. You can access pretty much any podcast. And it's them trying to sort of follow Apple's playbook a little bit and, and just have an, a native a native podcast app. Which is sort of what the BBC are trying to do with BBC Sounds. Absolutely. What's interesting is why have the BBC pulled their content from Google? They have stated that a lot of it's about um, when you search in Google, uh, how these things are all linked together. Now, that may be true. At a glance, I'm not entirely convinced. I think the the second. Give us the dirt, Matt. Come on. Well, what are, do you suspect? There really are going lo- there are lots of ways to 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 my mind, and you know, the BBC made an announcement. I'm sure there's far more going on behind the scenes with Google, but their announcement of of how they like their results to be displayed, I think they, like we all can, can instruct the Google search engine to show them that way. So I'm not entirely convinced that's the case. And they're saying it's, it's not necessarily to do with BBC Sounds and exclusivity. However, either together with this or separately, they are interested in driving traffic to BBC Sounds uh, and making that a primary place. Now, if, if you want to experiment, and this is just in my head, if you want to experiment with taking content off bigger platforms, starting with Google Podcasts that's less than 1% of the market's probably not a bad way, um, and suddenly stripping it from iTunes would... Uh, cause you a tsunami of pain uh, from listeners. So uh, I think there's an element of that too. Um, I spoke to Google um, uh, early last week and they said... You they, don't just mean your speaker. Uh, <laughs> you mean a person. I went, okay, Google, tell me, <laughs> no, what's the current the situation? <laughs> <laughs> His phone just lit up. <laughs> um, and, uh, there it goes. I can't help you with that at the moment. There we go. Thank you. Um, uh, and both Google and BBC have said that uh, they, are, they continue to be in discussions. But there is a big thing about... Um, it's a thing that's changed over the past sort of six to 12 months compared to a couple of years ago, where the, the view tends to be get your content everywhere. Whatever platform it is, yeah. just you've got, you've got to be in those places. And quite a few large broadcasters, and this is part of the Netflix effect of being really bitten by uh, selling content to Netflix previously, and now they're a competitor. Big broadcasters have started to be a bit more concerned about their audio. And the BBC aren't the only people that have pulled their content from Google. Um, Radio France has done it too. Um, And similarly, some countries, uh, broadcasters, have pulled their content from TuneIn. But Paul, isn't the mistake, I mean, I've said this on the show before when we've talked about another example, which was the BBC 
uh, pulling um, seriously for a while and only putting it on BBC Sounds. Isn't the issue not that the BBC Sounds has exclusive content on their app, but that they're doing it with pod- podcasts that previously were available everywhere? That's what pisses people off. It doesn't matter if you create a new product that's only on BBC Sounds. Isn't that an obvious lesson to learn? I think that consumers would obviously prefer to have content available wherever they want to get it. And, and Matt is right. I mean, Google coming into the business of podcasts has been good because it takes you away from you know, being completely locked into Apple. Um, I think this is, as Matt says, about driving BBC sounds. I mean, I, I asked um, Ben Chapman and Alison Winter from the BBC and the Google people on two separate panels uh, about this uh, this week at uh, The Sun. And the BBC guy said, um, it doesn't. They don't fit our distribution strategy. What does that mean? Well, actually, what it really means is we want to drive people via BBC Sounds. Um, also, other executives at the BBC have told me they want to invest more in content on BBC Sounds to really build that. They're a little bit disappointed with the 1.8 million downloads so far. They they want bigger numbers, and that is also about underpinning the future of the BBC. So I think ultimately, um, their view is they want control and they want to drive their own platforms. And there's yet another newsline coming out of the BBC this week. Uh, which is about impartiality. I mean, I suppose you could argue that's been the case for eight decades or whatever. (laughs) Came to a head this week after BBC Breakfast, Ben Thompson criticised one of the questions on question time uh, about LGBT education in schools and the way that that was phrased. He was saying that question never should have been allowed on question time. That was him criticising other BBC colleagues. It could have been interpreted as him having a view on politics, although he was simply saying, you know, this is my sexuality and I found this offensive. And there was a bit of a Twitter spat about this. The BBC is really doubling down now on impartiality on social media. Is that right? Uh, yes. And I think uh, BBC News employees got an email today entitled uh, Your Social Media Use, which I, and then addressed them all by name, which I think freaked out quite a lot of people <laughs> as they thought they'd just been uh, contacted individually. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, part of me is on the BB, on evil BBC corporate side here. Um, you know, you see... Uh, a lot of BBC employees slagging off elements of the corporation that obviously you would not get in pretty much any other corporate environment. Um, you know, you are a team and you you work together and some things you can do privately and some things you can do publicly. Um, however, the, the argument against that is, of course, that isn't it great that the BBC as a, as a public body can have, you know, different thought and people happily to challenge them in public? Um, I think Ben was probably right, um, but there's going to be a knock-on if you choose to put your head above the parapet. And this is something that's been an obvious issue for a decade now, isn't it? BBC presenters having Twitter accounts. And it's never really been properly addressed until now. Well, I think I would differentiate between BBC staff presenters and news presenters. Mm. And I think we have to expect that those who deliver the news to be impartial. And if they're saying something different on Twitter, I think that does risk impartiality uh, for the BBC. And I think trust in the BBC is critical for us and critical for for them. Um, There is no doubt, I think, that discussing uh, LBGT issues in schools as a debate is a legitimate topic for a debate. And the BBC was right to have that debate. I think that's almost beyond question. But I think it does skew things if individuals start jumping in on either side of the argument. And it's interesting that Tony Hall actually said that he felt that there was, well, there's data, in fact, that confirmed that public trust in the BBC's impartiality had taken a bit of a hit uh, in the wake of all the debate about Brexit. So I think the BBC is right. They need to defend that impartiality. And I have to say, I am on the side of BBC management here. I do not think news presenters should be expressing personal opinions of this sort. So does that mean no more Andrew Neil, no more James O'Brien on the BBC? Because their personal views are very well known politically, aren't they? But then you've got an interesting point with them being close to freelancers. Hmm. Uh, and I could see why you would be annoyed if you're in BBC News and Andrew Neil can have a a late night rant uh, about someone on Twitter, whereas the the news the news employees have been told something different, and the audience don't really distinguish. Absolutely, but also this is that this problem has happened in most news organisations. You know, New York Times had pretty much exactly the same story when uh, they've told uh, their journalists to be a bit more careful on Twitter. Um, cue a lot of grumpy New York Times journalists asking why that should be the case. And the problem as well is that obviously some BBC staff news journalists will just feel unempowered and so they'll just become bland on social media and that's not good for the BBC long term either. Well I think it's anybody who's on social media and I'm sure that includes everyone here today. Um, you've got to think of the impact of what you say on social media and whether that will have a, an impact on people you deal with. You made the comment earlier about me mentioning trains and, and Comcast. Well I think 
I, and I'm sure Matt feels the same way, has to think very carefully about what you put on social media in case it maybe upsets one of your clients mm. or one of your customers, one of your listeners. So I think, you know, the red light's got to be on the whole time. And I think, you know, as, as media people, we should always be thinking about how what we say is going to impact others. I think with news that people, though, it's very, very clear that we expect them to be impartial and impartiality is paramount. So they should not uh, say anything on any medium that calls that impartiality into account. That's my view. But it can look healthy, can't it, to show that within an organisation there's a debate going on? Oh, a debate's different. I mean, look, at the B- I worked in the BBC for a long time and people are very good at self-destructing within the BBC and it's always been encouraged to have a healthy, open debate. Absolutely, I think that's great and we should continue with that. But I do think when it puts the relationship between the BBC and the public at risk, that's a different issue. That's the sound of the BBC threshold being passed. (laughs) We're not going to talk about the BBC for at least the next five minutes. Uh, We're going to talk about The Guardian. Stories there are going to get even more prominent date stamps from now on in a drive to stop old stories from being misrepresented on social media. Uh, Matt, what sparked the decision to add the Guardian logo and a prominent date stamp to old articles when they're shared? Uh, This is a great idea. So uh, you often see it, suddenly there's a a social media furore about why isn't this covered on the mainstream media? Whilst normally linking to some mainstream media. Uh, (laughs) And it ends up being an article from ages ago. Uh, so the Guardian had always had, um, more than other newspapers, a, a more prominent, uh, this is from a few years ago, uh, note on the uh, on the article itself. They have bumped that up and made that uh, very m- much more visible uh, on Bright their yellow. website. Uh, nice, yeah, Guardian yellow. Uh, but the other thing they've done is uh, on the uh, social media thumbnails, what you see on Facebook and Twitter, um, that now has uh, a date, a year, like this is uh, from 2016 uh, on there as well. Uh, So they're just trying to signal to people that uh, these are older articles. Because I think one of the things they found was there was a lot of sharing of old stuff to make a a political point, but a lot of the people that shared it hadn't actually clicked on it. Uh, And so the thumbnail becomes a hugely important part of of sort of anti-fake newsing that story. It feels like a responsible move, but then you might wonder, Paul, whether it might be more responsible to just take down old news after a certain period of time. If you know it's getting that kind of currency, groups are using it for their own ends and trying to make a point, especially if, for example, someone was taken to court, then they later won an appeal, but the story where they were taken to court is the one that's still doing the round six years later... Shouldn't you yeah. just delete it? I mean, the, pro- the problem with that, of course, is then where do you draw the line? You know, at what point do you decide to take down or not take down? You've then got a whole editorial process you've got to put in place with a series of criteria. And if you get, whatever you do, you're going to be criticised, you know, either for taking down or not taking down. Someone's going to think you've made the wrong decision. I think the flagging is better because it actually enables people to make their own decision, but retains everything there. So I think, you know, if, if it's properly flagged and labelled, it's a bit like the issue about editorial or non-editorial. As long as it's flagged and you know which it is, you can then make up your own mind. So I think this is a smart move, and I I agree with Matt, basically. Also, I think breaking, um, removing links starts to break the internet. Hmm. Uh, I think it is is a a kind of a snapshot in time. I'm sure there is stuff that you can do cleverly and programmatically to refer to things that have changed. I mean, the other thing is in in Europe, uh, as we are at the moment, uh, you can have um, the right to be forgotten uh, is something, and if you have an issue that happened to you Uh, you can get search engines and the like to remove references to those things. But then that sort of does assume that everyone's on the same program of let's keep the internet as a cultural artefact and the stuff that we said 10 years ago or that Rod Little said in the column that was funny then, that's all preserved because it was fine 10 years ago. But I just wonder if that is consistently what happens or whether all over the shop people are craftily deleting things that don't fit (laughs) our modern sensibilities. Uh, Yeah, but I think having, having places of record, I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah, so th- actually there are a few places of record, literally, aren't there, on the internet, like people who try and snapshot. Mm. I, mean, you, I mean, we mentioned it already, but the New York Times is uh, yeah, oft, oft quoted, isn't it, of, of, of that's what they said at that point. Mm. Uh, and why should that change in the age of the internet? And Paul, do you think then this is something that should be extended to Facebook? And one of the things The Guardian explained in that blog where they were talking through these changes was that they're doing it because when the things get quoted on Facebook, people don't necessarily click through, like Matt said, so they don't even get to see the prominent date stamp. Should Facebook themselves be putting when you share it? This is obviously an old article. I would welcome that. And and personal view, you know, I'm getting a bit fed up with Facebook because (coughs) people are using it for what I consider to be inappropriate purposes. I mean, particularly you take Brexit again. It is full of politicized stuff and people misappropriating uh, exactly as we've just described. And that actually is turning me off the platform. So I think it's probably in their own commercial interests to think about something like this. Yes. 
Now, a story that happened a few weeks ago, but this is our first opportunity to talk about it on the show. MySpace admitting to losing 12 years of uploaded music after a server migration project supposedly went wrong. Although there are conspiracies (laughs) online to suggest that maybe this might not have been entirely undeliberate. What did MySpace say happened here? Uh, so MySpace said, uh, I mean, MySpace has been through a lot of different owners. It's amazing that they're still a going concern, yes. really. I'm talking about them like they've got a corporate yeah. line, but I, they I, do. I bet the worst bit about buying MySpace is you've got to deal with uh, <laughs> like 15 years worth of stuff. Um, and uh, they were moving stuff from one server to another, and they thought it had all been fine. And then when they checked it, it had, it had um, broken and the old stuff had gone. And oops, lots uh, of expensive musical data that most people weren't listening to anymore had suddenly disappeared. Yes. Yeah. Uh, also, I think... Uh, people who uploaded their music uh, at that time, probably not all entirely disappointed that it's disappeared. And also someone said to me, if you had it then, you've probably still got it now on a thumb drive or a zip drive at home anyway. You're even possibly a CD back then. But this idea that when you upload something to a cloud-based service, which MySpace kind of was, that it might be there forever in some form, this really put pay to that lie, didn't it? It makes you think about your Dropboxes and your... What you've, the photos you've got stored on Facebook, they can just, they're, they're still owned by a company. At some point, they can disappear. Yeah, I mean, I don't uh, rely on the cloud to that extent. I back everything up, and everything I really want to keep is backed up somewhere else. So uh, I'm definitely not going to rely on any third-party provider to uh, keep my stuff safe. I will always have a backup. A cloud is just another person's computer. Absolutely. But, but let me give that cloud a silver lining. <laughs> um, if it's got a .co.uk suffix on it, the web address, did you know this? I only found out about this this mm-hmm. week. It's being archived by someone. I can't remember who, the British Library or something. Okay. Are archiving every .co.uk site. Oh, heaven help us. To prevent <laughs> this kind of issue in the future. But if you put your stuff on a .com, then there isn't an authorised presence. We alluded to this earlier, but there isn't an authorised archive yeah, service. Yeah, I mean, and there's the Internet Archive, which, which uh, take, takes a lot in the States. The problem is that there, it, if it's a third party, it's just scanning websites. Yeah. And if stuff is encoded in a strange way that it can't quite get its um, its uh, spiders to, to grab. And for big files, audio files, video files, those sorts of things, it's probably unlikely to back up all of that. But there's a generational um, thing here as well, which I find mm. really interesting, which is that people who are roughly kind of my age and above think of the internet archives as like a photo album that they'd want mm. to look back and look at and be like, oh, yeah, I remember that haircut 10 years ago. Whereas younger people, they like Snapchat because they can delete stuff. They don't want a big archive of themselves growing up. Absolutely, and you often find on social networks that younger audiences change their usernames over time as well, uh, which is fascinating from a, uh, my personality is changing, how I want to be described changes, and that evolves and uh, and, and changes on. And again, I think that, as you said, the, the Snapchat side of that for things which last 24 hours um, fits into that world. Do you remember your first email address, Paul? I don't. I, I, it, it was AOL, the AOL, the AOL account, yeah. but I can't remember the address, no. Oliver Louis Mann at Netscape.net. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Matty at P-mail.net. <laughs> P-mail. P-email.net. Wow. Was that a local thing or was that a cloud thing? It was like a, a pre-Hotmail yeah. web service that I had to go to an internet cafe to read. Right. Okay. Nice. Sounded like... Lots like, of coffee then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I understood why you left that one behind. Okay, telly now and the support, we're talking mostly about, I guess, kind of mental health support given by production companies to reality TV contestants after a series ends, has been in the spotlight since the death of Love Island contestant Mike Thalassitis. Uh, what kind of concerns have former reality contestants been raising about this? I think one of the, the issues is uh, it's about, about aftercare. I think that what gets the headlines is is aftercare to the to the programmes uh, help these individuals months after they've been on these TV shows, and it's 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 a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, of course the answer is yes. You you would hope so, but um, how individuals are affected by by things, the kind of people that go on those shows, um, uh, even uh, a television channel that provided the most help are those people asking for it. How do you, uh, how do you find it out? How do you uh, get in touch with those people? Um, it's a, I mean, it's a hugely difficult issue to tackle. Well, it might be now, but I mean, it was, it's fairly obvious, isn't it, that in the early days of reality TV, anyway, zero thought was given to this. It's a thing that's evolved. But people just wanted the most nutty people to go on telly. I mean, that with respect to anyone, any individual that we're talking about. But they wanted the most sort of madhouse, madcap people to go on there, exhibit eccentric tendencies, and then didn't care what happened to them afterwards. That's 
the culture that was laid down 15 years ago. Mm. I, I think there's a responsibility, though, isn't there? You know, if you're involving any member of the public, which effectively these are, in your production, you have a duty of care to them uh, pre, during and post the, um, the production process. I think the issue, as Matt says, is how long afterwards does that continue? Um, it may be also that there's a process here which might be a better vetting process. I mean, maybe there needs to be some consideration beforehand as to individuals robustness and ability because you know you know that going through some of these shows is quite brutal I mean I mean sometimes the feedback you get I'm not I'm not just talking about Love Island generally on reality shows can be quite tough you know if you got that in the workplace I think you'd feel quite quite uncomfortable and yet this is on television in front of millions of people so it's not surprising that for some people this is difficult Um, I think that there has to be a limit to that care but clearly it's the responsibility throughout uh, of the, the broadcaster, the production company, to look after those people as best they possibly can. And when does the responsibility end is the interesting question, isn't it? Mm. Because, I mean, Love Island's a really interesting example, I think, because when I'm talking about breaking people down and revealing their eccentricities, I'm thinking of things like Big Brother, mm. which is the raison d'etre of those shows. It's mm. let's see how people cope under pressure. Love Island isn't that. It's supposed to be a fun, sexually mm. promiscuous, <laughs> let's see lots of fit people walking around in their swimming costumes show. The damage appears to occur when people leave the show and on social media as a result of the show, but not caused by the show's producers. Uh, I, I think that I think that's the case. I mean, the, the national newspapers uh, jump on responses to, to contestants. And I think one of the issues is every single element of your life is reused for clickbait. You know, for, for a lot of reality shows, you have a relatively short shelf life. Um, and then you, but you're probably not ready or you're not able to go and get a normal job and go back to the back to the real world. And I had a I had a friend who was on who was on Big Brother and did all right in it, um, but could not get any uh, work. Well, he went and wanted to go back to his real life, and was and the fame element wasn't a huge part part of his personality. Um, but every interview was a, a, a dreadful thing until he was interviewed someone who'd never watched the programme, wasn't really aware of, of what he did, and, uh, and then he got a job that way. So should programme makers be supplying support to people so they can cope with that kind of scenario, going to a job interview? Is that the kind of thing they should be helping people with, or is that beyond the remit of the show? I think, you know, if that was the case, where does responsibility end? I mean, it has to be curtailed to some extent. Well, I what's mean, a reasonable threshold? A year? I think a year would be reasonable. Six months might be reasonable, actually. I mean, you know, it's it's impossible to say. You, it, I mean, you've got to make a decision, but I don't think you can possibly uh, really forecast what's the best time. I, I mean, at the end of the day, there's going to be also financially uh, an element to this, isn't there? You know, cost to this. Six, 12 months, something like that, but not beyond. I mean, it, you, you can't. You can't. It's impossible. Does it have implications for commissioners looking at that kind of... Pro- I mean, I'm thinking of all the kids on Britain's Got Talent, mm-hmm. for example... You know, you you could reasonably make a case they should be looking in on them for twelve years after they've well, been. Well, I, I wonder whether you should have them on at all. I mean, when I see some of those kids on there, I do think you know this looks to me a bit exploitative by the parents. Yeah. And I I feel a bit awkward sometimes thinking, yeah, you're great, but what happens if you don't win? This could be devastating mm. for you at this time. I mean, I I'm sure you think back to when you were a child and the first time something didn't happen, didn't work for you. It's really difficult, isn't it? You know, I remember when I failed my driving test. I mean, that was a major catastrophe for me because I'd never really failed anything before. I thought, shit, I. Can't can't pass my bloody driving test. So I think you'll be very careful with children. How many times does it take you to pass your driving test, by the Two. way? Two. You're looking at four here. Oh, my goodness, yeah. Mark. And five and six, because I actually had it withdrawn after a year. What did you do? Uh, 32 on a, in a speeding camera. On the same speeding camera, same hill in Letchworth. There's one at the top, one at the bottom. I thought you had 10%. Yeah, it, no, 33. It was, okay, I, they didn't like you, did they? You're really addressing the details here. I th- you're right, it may have been 36. I've got to be honest. Yeah, it can't have been 32. It may have been 36. 36, yeah. yeah. Anyway, once at the top, once at the bottom, because I was in my first year of driving, even though it was only six points, not 12, I had to resit my test. By that point, I was already driving an automatic, so I had to get an automatic license, and then I wanted to reapply for my manual license. You better six get tests. 12 months of counselling. <laughs> yeah, and you so. can find out more about that on Ollie's Car Talk. <laughs> uh, we'll be back with some more media news in brief. That's what we're talking about after this. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Media Podcast, part two. Matt and Paul are still with me. And only just, you've both flown back in just from Switzerland. You've been at the annual Radio Days conference. Especially for this, Ollie. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, Radio <laughs> Otherwise, Day. you'd be living out there. Uh, Radio Days Europe in, in Lausanne this year. Uh, great event. Um, really well attended. Uh, lovely place. If you haven't been to Lausanne, I heartily recommend it. I, 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 whenever I hear minutes. about it, I imagine a lot of executives from all over Europe talking to each other. Is it a bit more than that? Uh, there is a decent chunk of that. Uh, I think there's a broader range of people that probably go than just just execs. Um, the interesting thing is you've got public service broadcasters and commercial broadcasters who sort of inhibit different worlds. And then you've got a big kind of chunk of podcasts and uh, new entrants and support services as well. And now the UK's radio festival is slightly smaller scale than it used to be. It sometimes feels like Radio Days Europe's almost got the UK executives more excited than our one? Well, I think it's not just executives. I would say, actually, executives are in the minority. There's a lot of practitioners and, and producers and, and presenters and, and actual radio uh, you know, on hands-on people there. Um, I think the glory of it is that it's right across Europe. And in fact, Europe's now quite widely defined because we had delegates from Canada and Australia and Israel and all sorts of places, a bit like Eurovision. You know, Europe covers much more than just what we think Europe is. So we can still be part of it next year. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, definitely. Well, we're still part of Europe, aren't we, if not part of the, the other bit. Um, the thing is that uh, it's it's a good mix of strategy, of programming, of marketing, of sales, you know, and, and downright quirky. I mean, they, you know, there's, there's sort of sessions on AI, um, you know, odd things which you wouldn't see at any other event. And it's big, you know, 1,600 delegates. So it's a big event. Now, I know what you're thinking. Paul Robinson talking about Radio Days Europe. That's the pod of dreams for me. Well, next week, there's going to be a bonus episode of this show on the media podcast feed in which you hear Paul talking to various different bods at Radio Days Europe. But wait, there's more. We're going to hear some clips now. Paul, what have you got for us? So the first clip is uh, Bob Shannon, who is currently Director of Radio and Music and has been appointed as the new Managing Director of the BBC. So effectively, he's now Tony Hall's deputy. Yeah, what is uh, his title? So his title is just going to be Managing Director? Managing, is it managing Director, director comma, lots of other things. Effectively, it's the job that Anne Balford was doing as Deputy Director General, but not lots of not the admin and finance bit. So he's going to be doing all of the strategic overview, all of the audience stuff, thinking about the future of the BBC. So he really is now the number two at the BBC, which is, I mean, great in Anyways, if you're a radio person, to have mm. Bob there, it's a really good message. And you sat down with him and you asked him about, uh, amongst various things we'll hear next week, what he thought of the new BBC Breakfast launches. Well, we, he came on stage for a panel and so uh, I was bringing the panel on. So I sat in the darkened room at the back and it really was a very, very dark room indeed uh, with my little microphone and asked him about the Radio 1 Breakfast Show. Radio 1 went first uh, at the end of last summer. Um, I think we're all thrilled with the way that the new breakfast uh, and drive shows have have taken off. I think uh, Greg James and his team in particular have done a wonderful job of creating really engaging, must-listen, live, linear radio. They believe in it. They believe in its potential to attract young audiences, and I think they're right to believe in that. Uh, they're passionate about it and they are working harder probably than ever before to try and make it a real destination, a real place that young audiences want to 
come to in the BBC. And talking of Greg James, Paul, you, you sat down with the man himself as well. I did. I've got a lovely picture of us wearing the same T-shirt. Well, not, not the same T-shirt, but the T-shirt with the same design. You've painted the mental um, image now. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's a bit scary because he's about half my age. But anyway, we just about got away with it. Greg was just lovely. I mean, he did a really good session with his team. Uh, and, you know, the thing about Greg is he, he's been working on this for 20 years. I mean, he, when he was at school, he was thinking, I want to be on the Radio 1 Breakfast Show. And he's now 33, but he's really thought about it. He's a real radio passionate advocate, bright guy, lovely guy. And, you know, it's not surprising he's doing well because it just sounds great on air. I feel like this was the right time for me to get it. I wouldn't, it would not have been a success if I got it at 26 or 27. I feel like I'm much more settled in my actual life. I've gone through my 20s. I know what it's like to be 20. I know the pitfalls of all of that stuff and having shit relationships and coming out of those and you know, renting a house and finding, you know, friends and working out what, what, you know, who you are a little bit. And I know that I'm in a much better place than I was even three or four years ago. So it came, it came to me at the right time. And I'm really pleased that Radio 1 have dropped this whole sort of, well, you have to be the age of your listeners to communicate with your listeners. Sometimes that's true. And, but I'm better at, I'm better at hosting a Radio 1 show at 33 than I was at 23. Is he better at reaching the 13-year-olds, though? I he, think is, he is. I think he's better, but I'm 37. <laughs> I think he is because, I mean, first of all, he's identified that he has an audience he has to talk to, which is not necessarily him. Uh, he's lived through that age, so he understands it, and he's thinking about it. And, I mean, if you think about some of the best broadcasters on any radio station, they don't necessarily reflect the audience that they're, they're, they're targeting. Look in the U.S. I mean, in the U.S., you know, you've got guys who are 40, 50, 60, and they're targeting, you know, a, a 25, 45 age group. So I don't think it follows that you have to be the age of your audience, but you do have to understand your audience and talk to that audience. And that's what Greg, I think, understands very, very well indeed. It would be inconceivable now, though, wouldn't it, Matt, to have a Radio 1 breakfast show presenter who's, say, 40. I mean, there still has to be a cut-off, doesn't there? Yes. If there was no one else better, of course a 40-year-old could absolutely do it. It'd be absolutely fine. Um, the other, I did, but all this stuff's quite difficult. Is Scott Mills does uh, an afternoon show on Radio 1. Uh, he is mid-40s, uh, and he still sounds youthful. Mm. And that show, they're very clever with how they put together that show with, you know, he's always got a... Um, a kind of a character with him that helps him do different bits and bobs, and that show has a has youthfulness, and you can you can absolutely achieve it. It does get more difficult as you get older, uh, but I think as, as Greg talked about, there is a sort of sweet spot where if you're focused on it and, and you really understand and the the listeners respect that and can feel that too, um, you can you can attract the younger audience. The other the other thing I think where Radio One went wrong before with a, with a much more youthy outlook. Is you've got to remember about households with uh, people under 15. Because households with people under 15 all have people who are 30 to 50 in them as well. And so actually, if you want them to listen, if you want everyone to be able to listen to that, if you want the kids to be able to listen to that radio station, mum and dad have to be able to tolerate it as well. Um, and you know, someone like Greg uh, does is very listenable by all ages. But that helps in a younger household too. Okay, you can hear both of the full interviews that... Paul has done with Bob and Greg next week when we publish both conversations as a bonus episode. Uh, Apple, let's talk about them. They have finally launched their own streaming service. Much speculated about on this show, of course. They had a slew of big names, which I guess everyone knew, but they didn't know exactly who the big names were going to be. I mean, genuinely big names. Steven Spielberg, Oprah Winfrey. I think a lot of people in the UK, Paul, though, are still a bit confused as to what exactly Apple TV Plus is going to offer, how you join it, who's on it what you get in the UK. Yeah, I, I don't think consumers know at all what it is. It's interesting that Plus is now becoming the, the badge, if you like, for all of these OTT SVOD services. Disney Plus, of course, will launch this autumn. We have Netflix already. We have Amazon Prime. And there are other services. Uh, I think the issue is going to be how Apple fits into that ecosystem. Um, I've seen some research recently suggesting that most people are probably only going to want to have two or three such services. I mean, I have Netflix and I have Now TV, so I get the Sky Premium movies, for example. But 
that, you know, they're going to have to lodge somebody else out. Now, I mean, when you talk to Netflix executives about this, they say, do you know what? We're not really too worried about Apple or Disney because we don't think anyone is going to drop Netflix to get Apple or to get uh, Disney. So this is going to be what they do to get themselves into that bouquet of services which people are going to take. And in the US, you've got Hulu as well, which is now fully owned by Disney. So very, very complicated. But essentially, it's another subscription video on demand service. Which is a bit disappointing, isn't it, Matt? Like, we've been talking on this show about how what it might be is something that's bundled in with every phone, like you were saying with the podcast app mm. earlier, so that if you've got an Apple device, and they're now asking for four figures for one of those, that actually this would be a bonus to having that rather than Android. But it looks like they're going to make you pay for it. Uh, yeah, and they still haven't announced what that price is going to be. Is mm. it going to be something on the 999 end, the sort of Netflix end, or is it... A cheapo one? Is it skinny? Is it like a skinny bundle, or is it, or is it something more? I watched it. I watched the live stream, and Oprah is basically doing some documentaries in a book club. Mm. Great. I mean, she does also have her own TV channel. I mean, yes. if I was discovery, I think it's discovery who co-own the Oprah uh, own the Oprah channel. I'd be a bit annoyed to see Oprah pop up on Apple TV. I thought maybe they're going to announce acquiring own, and I was like, actually, that's quite interesting. It's got quite a broad selection of programming on, and you've got a big figurehead. But it's kind of like, oh, a couple of docs and a book club. It's not not super exciting. It's no, not distinctive, but, is it? No, but what they are doing, I mean, they, they, they are setting up a whole network of um, distribution and acquisition uh, executives. And, in, you know, in my other life, I'm talking to Apple about other things, and they are buying lots and lots of content. Um, at the moment, what they're doing is their strategy is to buy content that will actually ensure they are not disadvantaged compared to other streamers. So if a show is on Netflix and is not uh, exclusive, they want it. Uh, if it's on Amazon, they want it. And then they're going to add their own exclusive content, and that's the stuff they're going to, to market. I mean, in the kids' business, for example, you know, if you're in the UK, if you haven't got Paw Patrol and Peppa Pig, then you're probably not going to get a parent to buy because they're sort of two essential shows you have to have. You talk to Amazon, they say, we've got to have those shows. And, ne- and Netflix. Netflix and uh, and Apple are saying the same thing. The question is going to be, what are they going to stand for? You know, what is going to be their House of Cards moment? And I don't think any of these things are that. No, even the Spielberg thing is a reboot of Amazing Stories, mm. which seems like the sort of thing you would see on either network television or Netflix. Not that distinct. And there was uh, some reporting a few months ago where Apple are getting very nervous about the naughtier end of things, uh, blood and gore, sex and violence, all that kind of stuff. All the good stuff that people want to watch these uh, well, shows. Game of for. Thrones, you mean? Uh, yes. Uh, and suddenly, if, if, they're, if, they're, if, they're being, if they're concerned about these things, trying to be what they said they were, which is you know, the home of great creators, uh, becomes a difficult thing to do. The good news is it is fantastic if you're a producer. Yeah. If you're a producer of content, this to. is the best news. It's another customer. Uh, Netflix have been paying handsomely. They're going to continue to pay handsomely because they've now got Apple at their door. So, you know, this is fantastic news for the production community. If I worked for Apple, if I was in charge of this decision, mm. though, I wouldn't have called it Apple TV anything. I mean, Apple TV is a hardware product from 10 years ago that mm. wasn't that popular. Mm. How yes. did that happen? Well, also, what happened <laughs> to the television they developed, uh, apparently, that, that they were going to release? It didn't work, but I disagree with you completely, Ollie, because if you look at brands and brand value, Apple is up there in the top five in all major markets. If you say which of the brands you aspire to, which of the brands that got values that you want to espouse, Apple is a very powerful brand. But why call it TV? Because that's how people still think of it. Okay. Well, that's I've how been, consumers think. That's how consumers think of it. Apple flicks would have been a bit obvious, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, you'll be thrilled to know there is just time for our beloved media quiz. Hooray. It hasn't been long since the BAFTA nominations came out, so it's time to test our guest commitment to the best of British TV. That word again. I'm going to ask you three questions about the 2019 BAFTA nominations. All you have to do is give me the correct answers. You buzz in with your name when you know. So, Matt, you will say... Matty at pmail.net. And Paul, you will say... Don't know my first email address. (laughs) If you stick with this, this will be amusing. Here's question number one. How did BAFTA decide that Killing Eve was eligible for nomination? Don't know my first email address. Paul. This is about windowing. And and this is interesting because I've been a BAFTA judge. And this is about whether something has premiered in the UK or premiered overseas. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't have its first window, its first screening in the UK, it is out of the running for the BAFTAs. And we've had this discussion as judges in the past. You know, you think this is the winner. This is actually the best show. Oh, no, we can't put it in because actually it had its first window in the US. 
And the decision this time is no, this is a British production, British editorial team, British idea, British made. Although the first window is in the US and the second window in the UK, we think it qualifies. And I have to say I'm pretty much in agreement with that. I think BAFTA ought to revisit its criteria. I said this 10 years ago when I was a judge. It must be about country of origin, the ethos of the programme, not about where it's appeared. And Killing Eve does have lots of British people involved Mm. behind the scenes. But Matt, you run the podcast awards, co-run the podcast awards. You know, the rules are the rules, surely. If you put the criteria out there, you can't then say, oh, but we want Killing Eve to win everything, so we're going to tweak them. Well, I think tweaking rules is fine if everyone knows they've been tweaked. Uh, I think what they've found with this one is it's such a, a, you a know, iconic, tweak. successful programme yeah. that they have to, they have to represent it. Uh, but also, I think it's probably the first time that there's been a big bit of like reverse windowing for a BBC show, but probably the first time of many. Reverse windowing is a good term that a lot of people have just learned. Thank you for that. Uh, Sandra or I'm not Josie? sure it's a term, but it's good. It's a good I think we have the Matt Deegan new term. Deeganism. Uh, Sandra or Jodie for Best Actress, I was going to ask. It's not for a bonus point, I'm just curious. Um, did you watch Killing Eve? I did. Uh, I think neither. I think the votes will cancel each other out. So in a way, it was oh. a trick question. They'll change the rules and two can win. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's question number two. Uh, about the BAFTAs, for which show was Lucien Samati nominated in the leading actor category? Buzzing with your email address when you know the answer. It was on Channel 4. Jack Thorne wrote it. No? No takers? No, we're both dummies. Uh, it was Kiri. Oh. Yeah, four-part Channel 4 drama starred Samati as Toby Akindale, the birth grandfather of the abducted child Kiri. Uh, but it was the only nomination that that series had. Was there anything that either of you saw on telly that you thought really should have been in the BAFTAs, actually, looking at the list of nominations? And Killing Eve obviously should have been there and is. I think one of the difficult things is to sort of know what is a local show anymore. Um, I thought Sex Education was great, and that is very much a British show, though you're sort of not sure about it when you watch it. Uh, and as you start to see more things in more places, and also in times, like, is it in this year? Because am I just late to it? Mm. It's, it's much more difficult to keep track. All right, and uh, question number three. Which ITV show won its first ever nomination in the Best News Coverage category? Oh, yeah, don't know my email address, but do know the answer to this. Paul. Uh, this is This Morning, actually, on it, ITV. You're so close. Isn't it This Morning? So close. It's Good Morning oh, Britain. Oh, it's Good Morning Britain. Oh, oh. Sure. You still win. Oh, no, well, not really. you the only one correct answer. <laughs> oh, OK. We're, we're dummies, dummies, dummies. Uh, good Morning Britain was named twice in the Best News Coverage category for its special on knife crime and also its exclusive interview with Meghan Markle's father. Uh, Good Morning Britain is sort of finally thriving, isn't it, after many years of clearly being second best? Yes, I mean, but it still is a quite far second in Perhaps the in the ratings wise. in the ratings chart. Yeah. Uh, but impact wise, I mean oh, something absolutely. Piers Morgan says goes viral every day. Yeah, I mean he was a, an inspired choice to to host that program. Uh, and the the news coverage he gets. Also, I think he does attract uh, and has the ability to probably get bigger interviews and I think they did Trump and that was a special on ITV as well as being on, on the show. Um is annoying, but that makes it, you know, Marmite characters have always done well on Breakfast Radio, and maybe they're, they're thinking the same for telly. I do wonder when they're going to finally make BBC Breakfast try and match it in terms of glamour, though, or maybe they've just reckon that's not what their audience want. Maybe it's not what the BBC does. I don't personally like BBC Breakfast. I find it a bit dry and a bit it dull. Looks really but it looks really drab in but comparison. It does, it? But it does seem to do okay, so I think why would they change it? Okay. Uh, well, uh, you win, Paul. Congratulations. Yeah, not really. You, no, you absolutely well, win. Just. Take it. Okay, thank uh, you. That is it from our show for today. My thanks to loser Matt Deegan and winner Paul Robinson. <laughs> we will be back with a bonus episode featuring Bob Shannon and Greg James, as we said, next week. I'll be back in a fortnight. And meanwhile, you can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing at themediapodcast.com. If you enjoy our podcast and you want to help, then take out a voluntary subscription at themediapodcast.com slash donate. You can choose an amount there to keep us going all year round, and I might even one day read out your name. Imagine how exciting that would be. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Rebecca Grisdale Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.